Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin with Jake show. So tonight I have my friend Richard James on the line. Richard, thank you very much for joining. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. No, pleasure. So as I touched on just before we um, click record, I'm very keen to learn about yourself, learn about the journey that you've been on to get to today. Um, but before we dig into all those details, could you ask um, or could you answer for me what are you involved in at the moment, like your projects, perhaps you have a day job, um, and just a brief introduction as to what Richard James is all about. Yeah, so my my day job at the moment, I've, is a, I'm working on a, a business, I suppose you'd call it a startup, although I'm not really in, in that world, of, uh, you know, it's sort of, um, it's a food production business, actually, we, um, you know, I've in years gone by, I've been in the in the travel industry and had had my own business, uh, but that sort of took a bit of a blow uh, a couple of years ago with COVID and and we, you know no more internet the uh, you know all the shutdowns and um, we could do any traveling which we relied on in our business, so mm. we sort of um, had to kind of get a bit creative and and sort of change the direction of the business which we've been able to do. Um, we were a, uh, a tour operating company and we did a lot of trekking, hiking, stuff like that. Uh, and we had one small part of the business, which we would make our own food for, for these trips we would do. Cause we'd go to remote places where often we couldn't reliably source local food, uh, or, um, we just found it was better to send our own stuff. And so we, we, um, we started making that here in Australia and then uh, really just to supply ourselves. But then when, when we stopped being able to travel, we thought maybe there was an opportunity to turn that into a product that we could sell to other people. So we've sort of been working on that. Um, and, you know, I've always been lucky or, or at least I've always wanted to, to, to work towards a situation where I can kind of set my own schedule and, and be able to be my own boss. I, I work from home. I've always done that, always wanted to do that. And it's interesting. It's sort of like this double-edged sword in that I've got the freedom to do what I want, but sometimes you can get a bit lost. Um, you know, you've got to be self-disciplined to to be able to stay on track in in that kind of scenario and then the i've enjoyed the freedom of you know always trying to run my own businesses but you know then the, you know sometimes you know we've gone through tough periods you know now we're, we're going through a difficult period and you know there's always there's always that uncertainty you know you don't have the the stability of a of a normal normal job where you've got a paycheck coming in week after week so the good thing about about that is that it gives me time to focus on on other things if and when I, I want to put my focus there, which is why I've been able to devote some of my time to to Bitcoin and some and economics and some of the themes around it. Wow. <clears throat> I love how um but all sorts of different types of characters get drawn into the Bitcoin space. And we'll we'll get into your interest in Bitcoin. And um I'm sure many people listening in will know that you're um the the creator of some great bitcoin films but before we get there so um can you talk to me a bit about the actual food product that you're creating so i'm assuming it's a um a product for yeah. harsh climates essentially so you were running your tours and people were up mountains or in glaciers or i don't even know where so 
yeah, I'd love to learn a bit more about that. So the it's called On Track Meals is the is the name of the business. You can look it up and look the product up on on our website. So it's it's a process called retort packaging. So it basically you cook a meal, whether it's uh, you know for example it might be a spaghetti bolognese or we've even got a steak um, or some other vegetarian stuff we've got um, curries, stews, things like that. You cook it sort of as normal, but then put it in a, a certain type of pouch, which is. It can either be aluminium or, or plastic, a certain kind of strong plastic and sealed in a very specific way and put in this machine called a retort machine, which cooks at, um, you know, at a certain temperature and pressure in combination, which basically then means that it's shelf stable when it comes out the other end. So it doesn't need to go in, into a fridge after that. So you can throw it in a pack and take it hiking in, in the jungle or something. Um, and it's perfectly good. It can stay for, for up to three years, but because it's uh, because of that pouch and the way it's cooked, it's quite like it's sort of it's not like tinned food where where you taste like it's just been blasted uh, all all the nutrients out of it. It's actually you know it means that you can maintain a, a pretty good tasting product, and so. We used to do this uh, this trek called the Kokoda Track, which is up in Papua New Guinea. It's quite a, um, I suppose you'd say for Australians, it's a, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, a lot of Australians have it have a desire to go and do this this trek. It's it's got a reputation as being very challenging, but you go through these battlefields from the Second World War and where the Australians fought the Japanese and. Um, some of the stories of what happened up there during the war are quite incredible. And so, you know, in, in um, my earlier years, I, before I sort of started my own business doing this, I would work as a tour guide up there. So you'd take groups up there and you'd sometimes be up there you know, for weeks on end. And, and Papua New Guinea is a pretty, you know, it's, it's a pretty difficult place. And we would eat these, these dehydrated rations uh, which is the stuff you you see in any camping store here. If you, if you walk into the store and buy something, it's like, um, yeah, you, you, this dehydrated packet that you've got to add boiling water to. And I just got to a point where I just couldn't. I was like, I'll never, I, I don't care what it takes. I'm never touching one of these again. So the whole business grew out of this desire to, to find a better alternative to the kind of food we'd, we'd be served up there. Wow. Um, yeah, I love entrepreneurship. And it's the well, it's the lifeblood of every economy, right? It's people that see problems and they pour their life energy force into solving it, right? It just it's some people are built like that. They go, "This problem's so annoying to me, I have to do something about it." Um, and in many ways, that's what's so interesting about Bitcoin because it solves different problems for different people, and it just depends what kind of character turns up. Um, yeah, how cool! Wow. Yeah, the, the the process of of seeing opportunities and then actually actioning them is is very difficult, frankly. Um, how's the business going as it stands? You guys are making some sales and um, everything's looking healthy for the future. Yes, it, it's sort of like it was it was hard to just to have to start again because we'd spent ten years building up a travel business wow. Um, wow. to a certain size, and then that. <laughs> that basically just got decimated overnight. So it was, so, you know, starting from like, scratch. What, 20, again, March, 2020 lockdown. March, exactly. And, you know, we like, had a, um, 
you know, a, a whole season that, you know, that's sort of the start of our busy season because it's yep. through the, the sort of autumn and winter that, that people and Richard, start sorry, traveling. So in, in the average kind of um, holiday season starting March, when does the season finish? How many tours were you running during that time? I think we we had uh, the season up in up in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, runs from sort of April through till October, November, wow. um, and we were doing that. And then in the at the uh, in the summertime, we'd do trips to Nepal and to uh, to Africa, and also to to around Australia as well to Tasmania. I think we had forty or fifty trips uh, scheduled to to run in uh, in twenty twenty, and they all just. Well, it's it's amazing how quickly it happened. How I remember having a conversation with my colleagues, even in possibly February, and and when the first headlines were starting to hit uh, about this this thing, and and I remember saying, "Oh, it's interesting that no one's contacted us about this yet. None of our clients have have come in with any concerns, yep. you know." And then everyone was saying, "Oh, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. It'll it'll blow over." And then I think within a matter of weeks everything had been cancelled mm. and we sort of spent the entire year just giving people money back basically uh so it must have been very very challenging uh, yeah it was sort of it was it was like your i i, I would often uh, you know over the years worry about what might go wrong in in the business and i and i thought it might be something in papua new guinea where something would go wrong on a specific trip and or or something would change in the political situation up there that would mean we couldn't couldn't do our work mm. and you know that i always identified that as the main threat to the business but you couldn't you know i just couldn't have even imagined anything like this you know when you're dreaming up your worst case scenario disaster yeah. scenario for the business yeah. you couldn't have even imagined this so it's interesting to have now been through that and come out the other side. I think the thing we're realizing is that this this new business is actually a better business and a better industry to be in and a better opportunity. I think the travel, although the, we all came together to you know for for a love of the adventure and and the lifestyle that that we got from that business, it's it's a tough business to run. You know these operations in third world countries. It's not very scalable um you know it would be it would be just a lot of work to you know to bring the next group of clients in and whereas you know with this with this new business it's it's we can see a path to growing bigger without with the same size team without necessarily needing to put in as much as much effort so i think you know if we um yeah, I think it's in you know I may look back on it as one of those things where it was a blessing in disguise, where mm. we never would have investigated this new opportunity had it not been for for what we went through in, in 2020. And so, Richard, off the top of my head, I'm just imagining you know the travel business. You're trying to get probably relatively wealthy people to a specific location at a specific time, um, somewhere in the world. You have to get them all there. You then have to organize everything for them. It requires a lot of labor on your own behalf. Lots of shit can go wrong. Probably highly stressful. Like 40 or 50 trips you mentioned that got canceled. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of um, back-end work to, to, to pull off that, let's say, product um, versus what you've essentially described, which is a, a kind of a ready meal kit 
that's a superior product to what was on the market before, which I imagine is not necessarily cheap to produce, but at least has a relatively fixed cost. It's done through a supply chain that you can kind of um, predict more easily than emotional humans, right? You know, are they going to be there on the 1st of April for their trip? And are they going to fully pay for the whole, you know, you just don't know, right? Um, Gosh, how interesting. And and to me, what's cool about that is um, adversity, right? You're challenged, like, fuck, 40 or 50 trips gone, revenue gone. In fact, I'm going to have to empty my company coffers to pay people back in what is an ethical thing to do at this stage. God knows what insurance you may or may not have had in place, but the kind of the black swan moment arrived. And there's a lot of people in the travel industry that would be thinking the same thing as yourself. Um, Can you talk a bit about like- The business was already on a a Bitcoin standard at that point. So that- (laughs) Okay, well, that helps. That helps, I'm sure. A bit of a a buffer, whereas, you know, some of the other, a lot of the other businesses yeah, wouldn't in, be or specifically oh, in that industry not. or anyone in travel just uh you know everyone just got smashed what? so i think we yeah we i think we, i have to give out give us credit for um yeah finding that new opportunity amongst amongst adversity but the uh yeah certainly having that bitcoin there and, and knowing that that was there as a as a backup um you know that helped as well, well i mean richard let's dive into that for sure because um there won't be many small businesses out there that have Bitcoin on the balance sheet. So um, can you, yeah. Can you explain to me the the day that that, that happened as a business owner? Like how did you, um, let's say what problem was Bitcoin solving for you as a small business and how has your business benefited as a result of, um, I'm assuming you literally bought Bitcoin with your balance sheet, but yeah, just talk us through how you did it, why you did it and, and what that's meant for the business. Well, I'd been on the the sort of Bitcoin journey myself in in a couple of years prior to that. And Actually, Richard, so let I me s- jump in. Let, let's go right back to there. And so, okay, so you've basically been an entrepreneur for you know as long as you can remember, running your own business. I love this process of wanting to be your own boss, setting your own schedule. During that time, Bitcoin came along somewhere. Let's jump in at that point, and then we'll reach why your business decided to adopt the Bitcoin <laughs> standards. So do you know what I mean? Because it will take a few steps back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so when did you first get involved with Bitcoin and um, and what was that process like? It wasn't that long ago. It was 2019 was when I really got interested in, in Bitcoin or, you know, learned enough about it to, to take an interest. But I'd sort of in the years leading up to that, I think I'd... I'd been sort of going down these rabbit holes that were relevant in a way that when I finally learned about Bitcoin, I, you know, I knew almost instantly that it was the answer to a lot of, a lot of these problems. Okay. So uh, those being things like Austrian economics Mm -hmm. and um, gold, you know, I was interested in gold and, and sound money and, and what, what makes a good money. And, um, uh, it's funny. I I think back to these conversations I would have with my father because we both had a, have a sort of an interest in economics, you know. And I we both studied economics at at the same institution, sort of one generation after the other in uh, at Sydney University. Although he was probably a better a better student than I was, I didn't actually make it through through uh <laughs> through the entire economics <laughs> course i just couldn't put up with it but um 
you know, and he would, he was probably the one that, that sort of started me on this path in that, in that he would, he came to me one day and he said, ah, I just had this conversation with my accountant and he, I don't think he understands that the central bank can just create money out of nothing. And that was kind of his, like my dad's sort of thing was that no one actually understood um, the fact that the system worked this way, uh, you know, not even looking at it in a, in a sense of, is it good or bad? Just that even people who are very high up in the, you know, in the system itself don't actually have, have an understanding of how it works. And I think we, we sometimes take, do take it for granted in that those of us who have been interested in Bitcoin for a long time, kind of, you don't realize how far down the path you've gone of understanding how the monetary system works. And so for someone to even get their head around that first step of, of how the central bank controls the, the financial system and the fact that they, they can, inverted commas, create money from nothing is kind of a, a big jump. And I, you know, so he and I would kind of have these, have so these Richard, discussions. Roughly, um, sorry for jumping in. So roughly, can you remember when it was that your father made that comment to you about his accountant? This is probably, t- uh, t- you know, 2016 or yeah, okay. s- 17, something like that. Yep. Um, and so I, and I also remember, uh, you know, a, a conversation with him where I, I said something, it was almost a throwaway line about, about government debt and saying that, oh, well, eventually, um, you know, the, you know, it's, it's irresponsible for, um, you know, for the government to go into all this debt and they, you know, they should be uh, trying to run a balanced budget or something like that was what I said from a point of not really understanding exactly what I was talking about. Um, but, you know, my dad had a go at me and said, no, like that, I'm sick of hearing this from people that the, the government doesn't need to run a balanced budget because it's got the ability to create money. Wow. So, yeah, it so can he was do all over in, it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's interesting is, is, you know, when you reflect on what he's saying, it's almost like a, an MMT type um, critique point of view where he's saying that, the, you know, there's no problem with, with the central bank um, creating money. You know, the, the, there's nothing wrong with that and they can do that indefinitely. And he is also, I think, um, coming from the point of view of, a trust in the system that, that the system is designed in a certain way for the right reasons. And that the central, and, and one of the tenets of that is that the central bank is an independent institution separate from the government itself with certain uh, policy goals that are apolitical and, and are in the best interests of, of the country. Whereas I would certainly now take a much more skeptical kind of approach and say that the central bank and the is sort of like another arm of the of the the state and that it's not you know it's its main role is kind of to finance government you know the growth of government rather than anything else and and so um he he i think has has to give him credit uh, has has kind of come around to my point of view uh, as the years have gone on um so but but i certainly have to 
to sort of, I guess, credit him with with getting me interested in all, in all these things. And so, but I, you know, I was pondering that conversation and the nature of government debt and can a government is a, is government debt the same as me having a debt as a you know in a household where i've got to make sure that my expenditures don't exceed my income and so i sort of started uh learning more about that and reflecting on my my experience of studying economics both at school and at university where i think there was so many things that were omitted and not explained properly and and with the wrong assumptions attached to them and it was sort of like going back and starting again and really trying to understand this stuff properly. And I, that led me to some, um, some information about, you know, about it. somehow I got to the doorstep of Austrian economics. So I was reading, you know, I read um, Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson. Then I started reading books by James Rickards who's obviously you wouldn't call him an Austrian economics, but, but he, you know, has a critique of the, the modern financial system and how fragile it is. And he's a big advocate for gold and, and, and goes, takes you a fair way down the path of why gold's important and why a system, a financial system based on gold, the advantages that that, that may have. And, and there certainly are a lot of advantages if you don't, if you've never heard of Bitcoin, you know, it, a gold-based system seems like the best system. And so, you know, I was also at a point in life where I was interested in, for the first time, in investing or at least trying to preserve and, and, and grow wealth. And so those two paths kind of went, went hand in hand. Um, you know, I, I was interested in Warren Buffett and, and value investing and Benjamin Graham and, and that kind of thing. And that led me to, I was a regular listener of the Investors Podcast, which is Preston, Preston Pish yeah. and Stig Broderson, their, their yeah, podcast. Brilliant. And that's where I first, uh, that's where I really first heard about Bitcoin in, in any detail. And, it, and, you know, not long after listening to one or two episodes of, of them talking about it, I, I found the Bitcoin standard and read that. And that's when everything sort of clicked that this, you know, the, the, this system of Bitcoin was designed on a certain set of principles that related to Austrian economics and sound money that, that solved this problem uh, in a way that even gold hadn't been able to solve. And so that was kind of my, you know, my way into it. And then, What's interesting is that from there, I sort of went on another rabbit hole, which was libertarianism and, and anarcho-capitalism and, and sort of this political philosophy that, that underpinned the work of the cypherpunks. And that's been a really important thing, thing for, for me. And, and, you know, I think something that's, from my point of view, has been equally enlightening and important as Bitcoin itself. What a journey, Richard. It's um, it's interesting in that the now I think this is the the fourth interview I've done as part of my new podcast, and um, the the journey that everyone takes is different. Like no doubt, it's different. But then there are similarities, and the investors podcast that you mentioned and Preston Pish and their show, 
was you know mentioned by another guest and that was the journey they took was also that value investing lens looking to preserve wealth and then they came across that podcast and that podcast taught them about bitcoin and then they go well, hang on none of the the calculations i'm doing from a value investor perspective make any sense because all of these equities are so overpriced like how can you actually find anything to invest in um and yeah it, it's it strikes me as there's going to be so many different angles that people bring to the table, but you're the first person who's mentioned a parent being really influential in their thinking. And um, it doesn't really matter if your father was, you know, in favor of central banking and modern monetary theory. It's the questioning that's been created and instilled at that point. Like, is this the right way to do things? And should we be doing this? And look at that journey that it took you down, right? Had that question or that conversation with his accountant never happened, then maybe you wouldn't be stood here today. Um, would you say that, you know, drawing strands on all of that, um, what to you was the most exciting or, or um, let's say, um, enlightening kind of subject that you came across? So at the end there, you touched on the libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism, for example. That's not something that I hear people talk about that much. Can, can you dive into that a little further and explain what you felt um, as a result of learning about that? Well, it's interesting the way the journey started to, to the journey to Bitcoin started obviously as wanting to find ways to to make money, you know, as as purely as an investment. And and this is probably another common theme that you hear is that the thing I think that's kept me so interested in Bitcoin over the years and has got me so motivated to to be involved in, in Bitcoin is just the fact that it's a fair system. Like I, I you know, I, having come through these years of, of study, I'm almost now finding myself, there's certain things that I was really sure of in, you know, after having studied Bitcoin and the, excuse me, <clears throat> the, I guess, economics around it for maybe six months, I was so sure of certain things. And now I actually, perhaps it's coming full circle where I, I sort of am now starting to question some things that I, that I thought were certain, but the one thing I am sure of is that I think Bitcoin is a fair system. And, and I think the world would be a bit a better place if we adopted Bitcoin as a monetary system. And so because for the simple fact that the same rules apply to everyone, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, um, the, the rules apply equally. And that got me thinking about politics for the first time really in, in my life, you know, up till, up till recently, it's not something that had ever interested me, but, uh, the, I guess this, the libertarian system is basically just a, you know, the, 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 the person who's influenced me most in that regard is Murray Rothbard. He's a, an Austrian economist, uh, but he's also developed this ethical system, um, you know, and, and it's it's built on the the I guess uh, system called praxeology, which was developed by Ludwig von Mises, which is, is sort of like just a study of human action, and it takes some some really basic first principles about the nature of humans and how they act, and the fact that they use means to achieve ends. And it's, he de derives a, an ethical system sort of based on some of these first principles. And the reason that I find it appealing is that 
you can, it's a system of rules that can apply to any person in, in any situation, you know, across all time and space. There's no caveats. There's no privilege. There's no in-group and out-group. There's no ruling class or, um, you know, underclass. And even a system like democracy, which, which is, you know, has a lot to be said for it. And, and I, I, I'm very hesitant to posit a, a better alternative to democracy. It's only that I notice problems with, with democratic systems. And I think some of the, you know, the problems of the modern world and, and where we found ourselves in, in 2022 can be traced back to flaws in, in the democratic system. And so I've become fascinated with this, idea of whether you could organize a society based on some of these anarchic principles where you don't have to instill a state with the monopoly on violence and, and all the problems that grow out of that um and, and it's it's a philosophy that a lot of the cypherpunks shared and and basically Bit, bitcoin is built on some of these philosophical principles um, you know about the the ability through anonymity and through a private telecommunications channel to abstract away the ability for one party to use violence against another, whether that's a, the government or whether it's you know a, a single actor acting violently. So there's certainly some some parallels there, but with Bitcoin, uh, so that's been an interesting kind of parallel journey. And it's funny how. In so many ways, when you are, let's, for example, just describe going through school and you've got 10 subjects and you sit in a classroom and you're taught whatever the subject might be, and they give you case studies. And the case studies apparently give you context to understand the theory that you're being taught. And I find Bitcoin brings context to basically every single subject I've ever studied in my life. Now, in this case, we're talking about how to build society it's very philosophical in a sense but obviously there's a political side to it and it just is mind-blowing the kind of concepts that it brings to mind like what does it mean that a state has a monopoly on violence like what does that actually mean and what are the flaws in a democratic system these are great questions that frankly don't get asked enough and this is what i find so exciting about talking people talking to people that are interested in Bitcoin, because we don't have to know the answer, but asking it in the first place is really, really cool. Um, so could we hypothesize for a second? I mean, um, we see the world around us, we've grown up with it, we're completely conditioned in a sense to think that it's totally normal how we live. And then along comes this nascent technology that might change that. Um, how do you see the future in that sense? Like what might change around us? Like, can you think of any specific use cases in a sense that you've come across that we might see a different world um, in a day-to-day -day life or how do you think it's going to um, evolve over time? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And uh, a lot of my thinking along these lines has been influenced by a book called the sovereign individual, mm -hmm. which it's awesome. Yeah. was really pivotal in, you know, in, in my sort of journey through this and that I suppose, you know, it lays out, it, it, it was written well before Bitcoin, but it's kind of eerie how prophetic it was in certain ways. Isn't it? Predicting yeah. how like spooky, something like, like Bitcoin whoa. would be, uh, you know, how influential that, that would be. 
So I'd, I'd like to think that the thesis outlined in that book plays out somewhat, which is just that in a nutshell, the advance of technology is, is kind of like a bulwark against the expanding power of the state. You know, the state being defined as, as a monopolist on violence that is just whatever organization controls you know, the most guns in, in a given territory, basically. Contacts everyone, um, however they want. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and ex- yeah, extort resources, basically, however they want. But in order to do that, they rely on, they're very much relying on the physical nature of those resources. So the fact that those resources, be they factories or individual people working and living in a certain space, you know, they, they need to be able to, that or that whole system is grounded in meat space in the physical realm whereas with with the advance of the, the information age assets and value all of a sudden are becoming dematerialized so that can be as simple as something like a piece of software uh which you know you can't tie that to a physical space and time it can you know it, it's it's not material and then the ultimate form of of this expression of value is something like Bitcoin, where you have a, have a money that that is not tied to anything physical. And so that, that basically ad, makes it much more advantageous to defend that. It's really easy to defend that asset. You know, we can defend Bitcoin by keeping a private key, keeping information in our heads. We can move around. We can send that at the speed of light. That, that's really difficult for an adversary to take over, to control, to tax, to steal. And so the hope is that over time, you know, that the evolution of that phenomenon means that it's more difficult for governments to, to fund themselves. And basically this whole, the 20th century and, and the way it's basically, it's sort of almost like the story of, of deficit funding of, of governments using inflation to live beyond their means to fight these crazy world wars and to create these these kind of social welfare states and you know i think that maybe that this next century we may at least see a, a reversal of that um just just you know, if nothing else, seeing the size of government reduce just a little bit, you know, anything would be better than nothing, but, but a world where perhaps people are treated, you know, citizens are treated more like clients, mm. where people have a choice, where it's more of a pay-for-service type model. People have the ability to move, move around the world. Perhaps people who wouldn't, would never, people in poorer countries who would, wouldn't have had these kind of opportunities through access to the internet and, and the inf- and information technology, perhaps they can develop skills, market themselves, and, and perhaps, perhaps join that, um, you know, sort of join that phenomenon and, and benefit from that as well. That, that may be asking too much because the, the sovereign individual book kind of, it talks about how it potentially gets worse before it gets better. And that, you know, you may have to be in the real upper echelons of, of of asset owners to be able to take advantage of this phenomenon. But I like to to think that certainly with Bitcoin, it, it gives an equal opportunity to to everyone to take part in that. 
and, and the word that I like the most around that kind of equal opportunity thing is the phrase of a meritocracy. And that, you know, you, you bring to the table what you can create or what you can sell and you exchange it for a, a hard money like Bitcoin. And those in society that are the most productive will benefit the best. Um, and that, that's completely different to the world we live in today, essentially, uh, where someone can just print money out of nowhere. They don't have to do any work. They just print it. It's, it's nuts when you start thinking about it. And just to draw on some, some of the stuff you're talking about, it's very powerful, that concept of um, defending wealth. And, you know, let's say over history, I was capable of, you know, beating some people up and stealing their gold. You know, how are you going to steal someone's Bitcoin? Like if you kill them, you can't just take their Bitcoin because you won't be able to get in their, their private wallet, right? So the, the incentive structure for this monopoly on violence and therefore the, the growth of what is now modern government, it's, it's almost completely redundant in the Bitcoin world. And as you already mentioned, the sovereign individual basically predicted that this would happen at some point, which is it's so spooky to think about. Um, there's, oh, there's so many cool angles we could go down, but what I want to do, Richard, is draw back to um, the statement you made earlier about your business adopting the Bitcoin standard. So we, we've covered lots about the, 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 the journey you've been on, the, rabbit's hole, the rabbit holes you went down, why you were there. And I love all of that because it gives such good context to so then, right, I'm a business owner and I'm going to make a big decision here, which I can pretty much... Oh, you'll be the first 1% of business owners globally to have done something like this, more than likely. So um, what was the problem that your, your business faced and how did you go about adopting a Bitcoin standard for it? Well, it, I guess there was a problem in that I found that, uh, I forget which, maybe if we go back a couple of years, the Australian dollar was going through this sort of long decline and getting weaker and weaker against the US dollar. So we would, um, we, and we had a lot of expenses denominated in US dollars. So I'd find that we'd draw up a budget to run a trip somewhere. And then three or four months later, when it came time to actually do the trip, you know, the, the exchange rate had changed and that, and all of a sudden our, our profit margin had, had evaporated. So that was kind of one example and i know that that's a simple problem you know on a business of any real scale it's a simple problem to solve with with sort of hedging and forward contracts and things like that but we're a relatively small business um you know and, and the expense involved in getting in getting involved in exchange rate markets wasn't you know wasn't really something we'd ever looked at um but probably more than that it was just the fact that i'd see We'd have, you know, we would have our, um, you know, operational expenses that, that would come out of the business day to day, and we had an account for that. But then we would have another account where clients would pay, pay us money, pay a deposit for a trip, and we might not have to run the trip for, say, six months or so. And then, but once that time came around, new clients would have paid into the account. Uh, for a trip, you know, further down the track. So we had this account where there was a, a relatively steady balance of money just sort of sitting there and sitting there in a bank account where it was earning no interest. Mm -hmm. And we, we could be relatively sure that, you know, a certain portion of it we wouldn't need to use for up to, to 12 months. And, and in certain industries, 
you know, it's quite normal to say in, in the insurance industry, like, like the way Warren Buffett made all his money, you know, that people would pay their insurance premium and then they would take that money and go off and invest that in shares or whatever. And that's how that, um, mm. knowing that a payout, if it, if it was going to come, would be potentially years down the track. So it was sort of investing that float that would kind of make them all their money so it was mm. it was kind of applying a similar principle which was just to say that we've if we've got a certain amount of cash sitting around um we'd be better off in yeah, let's Bitcoin buy a than, asset. Than a dollar bank account yeah. yeah and so i i put that to the other people in the involved in the business and and they were, were open-minded and willing to to go along with it you know it certainly was a was a risky thing to do and i i think back to just how sure i was at that stage i don't know this is probably 2019 that that the price of bitcoin was going to go up i mean i'm glad that it did because because mm-hmm. i think if it had have gone the other way um you know i I, th- I think it would have just been a matter of, of waiting it out, but it's nice the fact that, you know, fairly quickly, you know, we, you know, the timing was good. And so it, it wasn't like I had to explain, uh, you know, a bad, a bad decision. Like it worked out quite well. Um, so Richard, if, if I could jump in just briefly, so um, you've kind of slightly already answered it, but um, how did you actually do this? So um, the, for example, you know, one of the major influences in my re-engagement in Bitcoin was watching Michael Saylor buying $450 million worth of Bitcoin without telling anyone as a stock-listed company in the States. So he's got armies of lawyers, armies of accountants, armies of shareholders, all saying that you can't fuck this company up, and he still did it. You know, It's as good a due diligence of it as an asset you could possibly ask for, in my opinion. Are you the sole equity owner in the business that you're um, that you're a part of, and who else was involved? And did you have to go to say like a board meeting and pitch for it? And just I know that MicroStrategy has a, a playbook somewhere that you can you know kind of copy. Um, there probably isn't one for small businesses, which I think would be a really interesting opportunity to to explore, is to create like a playbook for a small business to to adopt um, the Bitcoin standard. But yeah, could you just explain a little bit more about how you actually went about that as a, as a small business? Yeah, with the small business, obviously, it's it's so dependent on on the individuals involved uh, and their personalities and and the structure, which can rat- vary radically from business to business. I, I was in this position where I was the the not the sole shareholder, but the majority shareholder. So I right. I did have this ability to sort of say, this is what we're going to do, and you know that's it to to a certain extent. I mean, okay. I wouldn't have gone ahead with it if if the others weren't comfortable which but funny enough i think it's sort of very was similar a... to um like sailor has extraordinary control of his company mm. unlike he was in a similar situation scale yeah 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 which is why obviously he's been able to do that and, and yeah no which is why there aren't many other micro strategies has been like... able to follow suit yeah um but then okay. you know once that once that we'd had that discussion everything was very simple i mean there's the slightest element of additional complexity in, in registering a, a business for a for a Bitcoin exchange than a um, yep. you know, the, a, than an individual. The, to, uh, to be honest, the KYC um, 
requirements are, are quite onerous. Like the, yep. the paperwork is is really annoying. Um, and and I actually, um, I think a couple of times I had to give up in because I just couldn't. Um, well, wow. there were possibly some discrepancies in in my documentation. It's like, oh, well, you're, um, you know, your uh, listen here, Mr. James, you can't do this. Commission <laughs> um, registered address doesn't match the address blah, on blah, this blah, bank yeah. statement. Oh my gosh! So anyway, that's that's irrelevant. It, it, but yeah, there was no other sort of n- nothing else to it except from signing up to an exchange and buying yeah. Bitcoin. Well, Richard, I'd love to congratulate you on your on your boldness as an entrepreneur in that sense. There'd be many people out there that wouldn't have made that decision. And um, no, well done. I'm absolutely confident that it's the right one to have made and the future will be very rosy for any other small business owner that, out there that might be listening. You know, there's people out there that have done this and it's possible. And I think that's really what I'm trying to convey in general from this podcast is um, there are a lot of people that have spent a lot of time in their lives thinking about how to you know, build society, run companies, make money, and they're getting involved in Bitcoin. Uh, and that's really what brings us all together to today. Um, so Richard, to, to move on a bit, um, you've made some excellent films. I've watched them all. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting you in person at the Bitcoin Bush Bash. And you mentioned you actually went to, to film school at one point and grew up in Sydney. That's probably a whole nother life. But um, yeah, let's let's explore that for a, uh, for a bit. So um, you went to film school. Did you ever make any other movies? What's film school actually like? What do you learn? And um, and when was the, the time when you thought, actually, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make a, uh, you know, a 30 minute long film about Bitcoin? Well, if we, yeah, going back to, to when I was still studying, I'd, I'd done a commerce degree, which is where I did some of that economics. Right. And I was signed up to do a, an addition, I'd just finished that degree. I think it was four years long uh, uh, because it was a combined with some, with liberal studies and I'd been doing some sort of history and arts type stuff. And I was actually signed up to do a, an additional year. And it's so long ago that I can't remember what they call, you know, a, a master's or an, on, an honors year or something like that where, and I was doing it, going to do it in, um, in German, the German language, where I was going to do some kind of literature study of, you know, I can't even remember the, the exact topic. <laughs> really longing out your student career. <laughs> <laughs> and like, but it's just a, it's just a symptom of. I mean, that probably would have been interesting enough. I, I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of there's there's worse things you potentially could be doing. You know, at least in Australia, you're not racking up thousands of dollars of student debt. You know, and I. I'd been able to get a scholarship to do that. So it wouldn't have been, um, yeah, financially wouldn't have necessarily been a terrible thing to do, but yeah, I just remember, you know, at our long holiday, you know, break here is over the summer and remember, you know, I was traveling at the time and just thinking, oh God, I, I don't think I can go back and do this. I, I need to do something else. And so, yeah, sort of made this spur of the moment decision. I'd, I'd been into photography, you know, in the in the years leading up to that. And so kind of just made this spur of the moment decision that I wasn't going to go back to studying at, at university. I was going to go to film school instead. And I, I, I sort of hadn't really thought more about it than that. And so I came back to Sydney and enrolled in this, um, this film school, which I'm not sure if it still exists anymore, but 
um, it was quite a new school. It, you know, it was it was only opened a few years uh, before I, I joined there. And so I went there and, and um, it was a two-year course in studying film directing and screenwriting and film producing and all these things. And that was, I don't know that it was the wrong thing to do, but um, I wasn't... It, wasn't particularly inspired there. I, I, I just think that, uh, you know, I had some good teachers, but the, the group of people I was with just wasn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't finding myself with a group of people that, that were really inspiring and, and I thought we we're going to go off and achieve amazing things. Uh, uh, you know, I, and I wasn't, and I was probably the same, to be honest, you, you know, but it just wasn't, um, you know, just for whatever reason, it didn't click the atmosphere there. And, and the thing I realized, you know, I'd got six months into this course and I learned some quite useful stuff. Like that's actually where I learned to, to use video editing software. That was probably the most useful thing. Uh, and also how to, how to use cameras and things like that. I realized in hindsight, I would have been better off with a more technical course. You know, there was also a, a, a directors of photography course where it was more technical, uh, and I think that could have could have been better, but I think I realized the problem was, and you, you you know you you hit the nail on the head, which was that I just spent too long, too many years in institutions, and I was like, I can't, I'm sick of sort of getting up and going to class every morning and getting set an assignment. Maybe it's an interesting assignment where I'm actually making a film, but it's still an assignment that some professor teacher has set me that has. Co- completely zero relevance to to the real world and whether i succeed or fail um at at this thing i've been told to do just is completely irrelevant and i think i was craving some sort of real world validation you know i think i just i i had this realization that i needed to just get out there and you know do something on my own terms and, and see what happened so i i left i sort of dropped out of the film school which I think was the right thing to do. And my brother had just recently got out of the army. And so the two of us got together and we'd always had this passion for surfing. We grew up in Sydney near the beach. And so we came up with this crazy idea to go to Africa and we spent a year traveling through Africa surfing. We made a documentary, sort of a surf film about our trip. And that was fantastic. That was one of those experiences that you look, you know, real formative, life-changing, you know, experience that I still look back on so fondly. And uh, how old were you and your brother at the time? I, we were in our early 20s, uh, awesome. you know, 23, something like that. Yeah. Um, that was great. And, you know, I, I spent a few years doing that. And that was a, a real DIY sort of project in that we... You know, we filmed that ourselves. I just did all the editing at home, uh, you know, put this film together and really had no idea. We're also not, um, you know, and it was, it was a surf film. Like most of the, the film is taken up with, with us surfing, but we're also not, we're not professional surfers. So I had a lot of anxiety and, and sort of, I was self-conscious as to whether anyone would actually be interested to watch this thing. Uh, but it was incredibly well received. And I think just the fact that we'd sort of put our heart and soul into this project for a year 
and and you know we'd really gone through some shit to to sort of go on this journey and make this film and that i think really shone through in in the project like that you couldn't sort of fake what what we'd been through to make this and you know people responded to that and so yeah that did really well in, in that we were able to to go to a lot of film festivals and we we got distribution for the film um and so that was quite a successful for project for on the scale that that it was made for um and so I did a few more projects along those lines. Um, we did an interesting one where we went to Afghanistan and went snowboarding. Um, you know, while you the do. war was going on there, <laughs> which was, and then um, another one where we went to and got a plane to drop us on a glacier in Alaska, and we lived out and camped out on the ice on this glacier for a month um skiing and, and and exploring and made a film about that so yeah i was making these films these sort of adventure travel sports kind of documentaries and that was fantastic and, and great fun and, and a good lifestyle but i suppose not it wasn't something you could really make a living out of you know we were we were able to to sort of drum up enough money through sponsorship and and recoup through selling those the films to for them to pay for themselves probably but not to really earn a good living and i saw friends who really were dedicated to that industry going on to work in more corporate settings whether it's in advertising or or maybe trying to break into bigger um working on bigger film projects professional film sets and things like that which none of that stuff really appealed to me because i found the um the actual process of being out in the in the field with a camera or on a film set to be quite a stressful one like i'm not really a great team player like I, i'm sort of quite I, I seem to prefer working as an individual on my own and so i find that uh, you know the stress of a big film set to be full on um you know it, it was always worth it if i had a, a vision for a certain project to, to go through that to get to the end but you know if i was going to work in that field i wanted it to really be on my own terms and at the same time you know this this idea for a travel business had, had kind of come up and and, and that i sort of took that opportunity just because it seemed like a better opportunity to to make a living and sort of went in that direction and had a family and and kind of stopped um you know stopped really doing any filmmaking work I was also interested in in writing writing because you know that was something that had always interested me. So I also, you know, in in conjunction with the work I was doing uh, on the Kokoda track, uh, I wrote a book uh, about military history, which is about um, a lot of the soldiers who fought in Papua New Guinea had also, in in the previous years of the war, fought in the Middle East, in Syria and Lebanon, in this really interesting campaign where the Australians were fighting against the French uh, who were sort of supposed to be on, on the allied side. But um, yeah, it was this, it was almost like a French civil war going on in the Syria and Lebanon colonies that the Australians got caught up in, which I found fascinating. And so I wrote a book about that. And that was another really interesting experience, which took quite a few years. And, um, and so, but, but the filmmaking had, had formed by the wayside really until uh yeah until 2020 when all of a sudden i found myself at home you know locked down not being able to travel 
uh, not having that much to do and was, you know, bursting at the seams with enthusiasm for Bitcoin and, and looking for a way to, to not, I wouldn't say to contribute because I've never felt that I've really, oh, I've got this, you know, these ideas to, con- to contribute to the Bitcoin space. It's more just that, you know, when you're so fascinated by something, you just want to work, um, you want to devote yourself and your energy to that subject. And, and if someone can take something away from your work, that, then that's great. But my initial attempts to, to sort of work in, it was almost like trying to get my own thoughts straight about I was learning all this stuff about Bitcoin and I wanted to sort of somehow regurgitate it in a way that made it sure that I understood what I was talking about. And I, and I was trying to write in the, in the first instance, but found that I couldn't quite, I couldn't seem to string together a, a really coherent idea. And there was already a lot of good writing around at that point on, on the subject of Bitcoin and so I thought, I, I don't know what the spark was, but I just remember thinking, look, there's hardly any, because uh, I'd searched YouTube and, and, play, and searched the internet for documentaries about Bitcoin and specifically Bit, Bitcoin, you know, not, whereas all the stuff that's out there is, is sort of crypto this. And, and I didn't feel like there was any video content that really captured that spirit of, of Bitcoin at that time where, you know, this narrative it was not that long after the Bitcoin standard had been released. And, and this narrative was crystallizing about the value of Bitcoin and what it, what it really represented, which was this incorruptible sound money. And to understand Bitcoin was to really understand the nature of money and what makes a good money. And so I just started, yeah, I thought, oh, maybe I could you know, make a video uh, and, but, but I also couldn't go anywhere. And so it was the project, which is called of Hard your house Money. And your, and your kids and your <laughs> wife, like, yeah, there's not much I, else you can do in a lockdown. And, and that suited me fine. Cause I, you know, I didn't want the, the stress or the hassle or the expense of, of traveling uh, to make a film. And so, yeah, I just thought there's there was so much content being made and released onto the internet that surely there was a way to put it all together in in a format that you weren't kind of doubling over this ground that had already been been done, like uh, like w- with all the podcasts um, that I was listening to, it was they were sort of the inspiration for the project, piecing together a narrative from from what I was hearing in these podcasts, basically. Awesome story, Richard. I'm loving it. Thank you for sharing. It's funny how, you know, that really started from a lack of inspiration, right? You're at film school and you're like, fuck this. This is not, you know, and and you quite rightly highlight that perhaps it was your own headspace that wasn't quite right. But, you know, surfing in Africa, getting yourself to Afghanistan, going to Alaska, starting a business, like these are all inspired moments and, and obviously mixed in with, you know, senses of anxiety, you know, you literally mentioned that, like at points you're anxious about things and the, the idea of being on an actual film set sounded stressful. Like that's not so interesting. And we all take these different different turns. I think it's in our nature in a sense, like something doesn't look appealing, but someone else that does look appealing and, and off you go. Um, and here we are today. And, you know, that's such a brilliant story. So you've made three films. Um, can you um, just for those listening uh, mention the titles of those films and, and which order did you make them? 
and um, perhaps just a little synopsis on what inspired you for each three, because they're, they're all slightly different to each other, um, about 30 minutes long. And yeah, so you've used like a, what looks to me like a, a montage of imagery, essentially, with then audio over the top. So how do you actually make a film like that? And what goes into the process of creating it? How long does it create, take to make a 30 long, 30 minute long film? Um, so yeah, just a bit more flavor in terms of what that process actually looks like and, and how you came to the results you did. Sure. So that, uh, that project that I was sort of leading to discussing how that came about, that was the first one, which is called hard money. And it's this, it's uh, basically a, like all the projects, none of them really deal with Bitcoin directly at all. Um, they're more sort of exploring these issues that are sort of peripheral to Bitcoin, but really critical to understanding standing Bitcoin. And perhaps the best way to sum it up is to, to say it's an attempt to highlight a, a problem, a really important problem that, that you may not have known you had and then lead you to the edge of the rabbit hole where okay, Bitcoin actually solves this problem if, you, if you're willing and open to understand it. So hard money is really a, a, a sort of reflection or investigation into inflation, you know, which sounds like a boring topic, but I sort of find it endlessly fascinating. And it was this revelation to me to, to learn how inflation as a mechanism actually works and why, and that I'd sort of been blindsided or tricked, even though I'd had quite a, a long and involved history of studying economics that I didn't understand inflation. I, I didn't understand that the main cause of inflation was an increase in the money supply. You know, I'd sort of been taught that, oh, if there's inflation, it means that the economy is overheating or there's some re, there's some supply chain problem, or the or I'd been taught that it was a a problem inherent, some kind of inherent problem with the economy, but but it was never broached the fact that it, it could be a monetary issue, which which I think in fact is the is the main issue. So hard money, it, the main thesis is just the fact that that central banks in in sort of hand in hand with governments use inflation as as a mechanism to sort of to confiscate wealth you know without having to do it directly via taxation it's basically another funding mechanism for you know for the growth of government uh, and you, you may or may not agree with that but at least it's good to be aware of of how the mechanism works and then uh, the second project i did is called anatomy of the state and so it's i guess building builds on that concept but it's um this sort of exploration of anarcho-capitalism, which we started talking about before. Anatomy of the State is a book by Murray Rothbard. It's only a very short book. You can read it in, in a day, but- I just finished it. It was a real, yeah. oh, excellent. Yeah, it's, it's one of those books that um, it was a revelation to me when I read it, it, it because it's just something so simple that I'd never thought about before. Um, it, it just- discusses the nature of government we touched earlier on this idea of the monopoly on violence um so it but it's quite scathing in in its analysis of of the institution of the state and what it represents so 
that film is, is basically an introduction to, to libertarian theory. But the word, I think these days, you know, Rothbard would have called himself a libertarian, but, th- but these days I don't even know that that libertarian, um, it's almost more extreme than, than libertarianism. Like I think these days, not, not that I really know, but, but if you look at some of the libertarian parties that are out there, they, and I've read a couple of books or at least tried to read them, uh, you know, kind of modern introductions to libertarianism. And it, it seems more like this, it's just a, like a classic liberalism, like small, they're sort of advocating limited government. Like, yes, there's a place for government. You know, we need, we need a, some institution that sort of basically runs the, the justice system and, and enforces the law. Um, whereas Rothbard very, is very radical in saying that, you know, any kind of government is kind of um, evil, basically, uh, you know, and, and doesn't fit within his system. So, yeah, reading Rothbard has, has been quite you know, quite a powerful experience for me. So this, you know, this film was a, an, an attempt to sort of, I guess, express some of those ideas, you know, put my own um, interpretation on it. I mean, it's quite a, a, a true sort of, it, it sticks to, to Rothbard's text um, quite closely, but every now and then it, it veers off and adds, it adds a few sections in that where it tried to tie in some economics and, and we don't talk about Bitcoin directly, but um, and then the third, third and most recent project I've done is called Petrodollars, and so it's a once again, you know, it, it's not really about Bitcoin, but it's about the the way the United States um, has kind of in the last thirty or forty years extend extended its hegemony over the global financial system through you know a deal that it did with Saudi Arabia where um, there was a deal done between the US and the Saudi and Saudi Arabia where all the oil sold by Saudi Arabia and OPEC and the oil producing nations had to be priced in dollars US dollars only that you couldn't buy oil for any other currency and that all that money was then subsequently funneled back into the purchase of, of US treasuries. And, and this system basically prolonged the US dollar hegemony for, for decades past when it, it may have, have come unstuck. Um, you know, it sort of talks a bit, you know, we start off with post-World War II, the Bretton Woods Conference and the, the construction of this modern financial system. And there's a bit of history about that. And then you know, it goes through the Vietnam War and, and things that happened in the US and globally, you know, right up to the present day. So, so that is, I suppose, more of a, you know, a, a realist sort of piece in that, it, you know, most of the footage in that film is real, um, you know, real footage from, from events and things that happened. And that was, which was sort of something different to the previous projects, which were quite abstract and, and, you know, now to, to, to talk a bit about how the films are made, you know, they were tired because those first two projects were dealing with these themes that you know, are a little bit esoteric. It was sometimes hard to, to find the footage that would 
work with those themes and be relevant. Whereas Petrodollars was great because there, you know I came across so much incredible old footage of all these events. Yeah, that, and politicians um, shaking hands and all sorts of stuff. I, I remember, yeah. And I'd sort of, um, you know, I picked the project sort of for that reason, uh, you know, because there was a big gap where I, I really didn't, didn't, didn't have a project in the works for a while. But then when I read it's uh, Petrodollars, it's based on a, an article by Alex Gladstein yeah, it's in a Bitcoin mag- article, yeah. magazine. Um, and when I read that, you know, instantly sort of the light bulb went off that this would be perfect, Interesting. Know, perfect as a, as a film piece. So, um, but yeah, the process of making the films is quite simple in that it's it's all done in front of the computer. I don't um, I don't talk to anyone. I don't do anything aside from assemble material I find online. So even the you know the, all the narration or the interviews or, or um, all of that. I've never sat down with someone and recorded anything. It's always something that I've already listened to and found, and and it's just me piecing together things that are already out there, usually from podcasts. All the narration, where there is a narrator in all the films, is always Guy Swan reading something on his podcast, um, and then you know it's interspersed with with clips from interviews with people that I've found you know in other bitcoin podcasts so certainly going back to hard money the first project i did where where i sort of established this kind of um method it yeah it was the i sort of built up this narrative in audio format with these podcasts and then it was kind of about well how do i actually set something visual to this uh and i'd kind of uh, somewhere come across a lot of these old animations um on you you know trawling through youtube you know they're from the the 50s and 60s these series of american animations and you know it's interesting how you know some of them are quite pertinent in that they they're about money and and some of them some of these political themes we've talked about like freedom and and so yeah, I found a lot of this this interesting old footage that that I was able to cut in, and it just seemed to work. Uh, and then I also came across all these old cartoons that were Soviet cartoons that had been uh, been made in Russia, you know, and a lot of them were were actually anti-American pro- propaganda, basically. And it's a really quite artistic. Uh, and amazing stuff and so i was able to reap um some of it i was able to, to cut in because the points they were making were actually quite interesting and then other stuff just i was able to repurpose the footage to sort of tell the story that i wanted to tell so a lot of the the visual content from the first couple of those first two projects comes from all these old animations that that i've found um and so with all the films, I, I don't claim any kind of copyright over them. You know, I've never tried to, to monetize the projects or do anything other than just, it's just a video I'm releasing online. Um, because having, to a certain extent, been through that process uh, on some other projects, when I was doing those, those travel documentaries and the, 
the process you'd have to go through to license, say, a piece of music or, for example, if I wanted to get a 20-second uh, clip uh, from the news channel and get, you know, get the ability to use that, like that, the time and expense involved in that, it's just... It makes the whole thing just a, a pain and, you know, you spend all your time, instead of being creative, you, you're just chasing your tail doing this, um, this sort of administrative work. So with these projects, I just, that very early on, I just decided I'm not going to do any of that. I don't care. I'm not going to ask permission. which ripping everything from YouTube. I'm ripping everything from these podcasts and I'm just going to put it out there and see what happens. I did try and get, you know, once I'd actually put put the first one together, I did reach out to a lot of people in, in Bitcoin who either I literally put their voice in the thing or the whoever had the podcast that I took it from. And of course, none of them knew who I was. I didn't even have a Twitter account at that point. Um, but it, most people got back to me and, and were quite, uh, everyone who did go back did get back to me was very supportive of, and encouraging wow. and so it sort of went from there you know that i released that on online and and it had quite a good reception and and you know so yeah so sort of, i didn't really expect it and you know one thing led to another and and um you know here we are and having done three of these it's been yeah it's just been such a nice process to have been able to to do this work that I enjoy so much. And, and I honestly didn't expect the feedback that I've had that, that people have actually found these things, things entertaining and, and useful in trying to trying to teach people about, about Bitcoin. It's wonderful. There's no doubt that, um, well, I, I got value from them. It's, it's a really interesting niche to, um, to be looking at, like quite to the problem you identified initially, which is there's some great podcasts out there. There's some great writers out there. And you're like, well, hang on, I know how to make films. Um, and we did briefly talk through just a concept I've seen work very well in other startup areas around one minute long viral um, video. And, you know, it'd be awesome to see yourself create more content in that kind of time range and see how that goes online. Like just on your um, Twitter profile, you have a two minute long video that you've got pinned to the, the profile, which I watched just before our um, conversation today. And I think it's Jeff Booth who you have talking over mm. some imagery. It's really powerful. Um, and, you know, what I'm interested in really is Bitcoin adoption. And so any way of helping people learn about it or get their attention is valuable. And what you're creating here is exactly that kind of tool. Um, and, and you already really mentioned it, which is there might be three quite separate subjects, you know, hard money through to the state, through to the petrodollar, but they all provide context to the discussion, which is what the fuck is our money? Why are we using it? Why do we need essentially something different? How does Bitcoin solve that problem? Um, and there'll be lots of different, in a sense, um, ingredients to that pile for different people. Um, and I do just think what you've been creating is a, a big part of that. So I look forward to what other things you might come up with and on which point I should ask. So, so what does the future have in store then, Richard? I mean, what do you, what do you, what have you got cooking? Is there anything in the pipeline or um, what are your plans for the next few months? <laughs> There's actually not. And that's kind of by design. I just thought it, I needed to just take a bit of a break from this specific line of 
type of work just temporarily. And, and that was partly, uh, I mentioned early on that I've just, you know, I've not been doubting myself, but, um, you know, I just think the time is right. You know, I've been going so hard at this for so many years and, and well, for three years now, you know, this has sort of been my main focus. And as I said, I was so sure of myself that I was right. You know, I was right about Bitcoin and I think I still am. And, and I was right about this, this, ver- this sort of political theory and this version of the world, you know, and, and I was on Twitter all the time and I was um, getting angry, you know, and I, I just kind of, I think I've burnt out a little bit and, um, you know, the first, first of all, is as simple as that is that I, I think uh, it's, it's probably one of my new year's resolutions was just to spend less time on my computer and my phone. Yeah. And just, I just wanted to sort of, like, I've been so engaged in the, in the Bitcoin community um, for these years that I think, yeah, just, you know, the intensity of that in, in an emotional sense, you know, I sort of couldn't just, don't think I could have sustained that. And I also found myself falling into this trap that I realize is a bad one of, of the sort of popularity contest of Twitter uh, of like, or, you know, my follow account or yeah. is my tweet getting likes and, yeah. and uh, that was taking up a lot of my headspace. And I re- realized that that's kind of a very, it's just, there's nothing to be gained by, by, Focusing on that, certainly not for me. I, look, I think it's a very valid thing in that if you're trying to build an audience and, and potentially make a, a career out of, out of this industry, I, you know, I think it's valid. And I, I, I can't be critical of Twitter because it's what's given me the opportunities that I've had. And that's how I've, I've been able to found, find an audience for this work. Um, but there was that element and the fact that, yeah, I would just, especially with everything that's happened in the world in the last two years, I would just get too angry. No, I would get on Twitter in the morning and I read five or six things and I, like my blood would boil. And I, yeah. I just think there's possibly a benefit in just stepping away a little bit. And to give another um, example, I, I recently listened to the series on uh, Robert Breedlove's What Is Money show with a guy called Jeff Snyder. And um, it's fascinating. I've listened to some of his stuff before. It's, and and he's, he's an expert in the euro dollar system. Mm-hmm. And so um, his, his main thesis is basically that he's not anti-Bitcoin. He's not a Bitcoiner, but nor is he an anti-Bitcoin necessarily. But he basically says that this that the whole idea of the central bank creating money is a bit of a myth because he doesn't believe that the the specific mechanism that the, the central bank goes through in in the way that it buys treasuries and then creates these bank reserves that it sends out into the system he actually doesn't think that that effectively makes any difference to the money supply because the the commercial banking system that sits underneath that don't really consider these bank reserves as money or as as a type of collateral that would actually make a change to um, 
to the way they operate and that the, the there's like this the liquidity the, the central bank is completely impotent to get liquidity into the places where it actually needs and and he also talks about the fact that you know i just spent the last four months on this project about the petrodollar system and how important that was and how you know the u.s is this evil empire and and that you know their hegemony of the money system has created all these problems and he sort of says it was almost like in a throwaway line that the the petrodollar system is almost irrelevant compared to the euro dollar system which is this shadow banking system run completely by this network of international commercial banks that have that have built up a, a monetary system with these u.s dollar dollars that they've sort of created from nowhere that has no what the central banks do have no relevance to them and and he said that that's the system that actually governs global finance now he may may be right and he may be wrong but it's just an example of me being like ah oh, like if if he is right then a lot of the stuff bitcoin is a saying about certainly about central banking is you know, we maybe need to just stop and, and kind of reflect a bit on, on this. And I think part of the problem is that the system is so complex but in terms of the way central banking works and then the way commercial banking works that I certainly don't feel confident even after all these years to, to say that I actually understand. I really understand how the system works. I don't think I do. Like I'm, they you know, they say don't, don't trust verify well i've sort of you know been trusting these people to explain to me how the, how the whole system works because i just can't hope to to get in there and grasp it myself and i just think and and the same with um you know my i, don't, I won't harp on that but that's just one example and then when it comes to to the political theory you know i've my most recent kind of interest and rabbit hole has been one of self-sufficiency and, you know, going down this path of, of, um, you know, growing my own food and, you know, husbanding my own animals and, and kind of living off the land a little bit more. And, you know, that's, that's led me to explore certain sort of other ways that, that one might organize a society that that have a more communal aspect and um you know it's just once again made me reflect look i think i you know i'm I'm still confident in my opinions but but look maybe i just need time to to reflect on all this a bit more uh and and yeah so my goal this year is just to to spend less time on the computer i don't know that i'm going to do any any film projects um and just kind of yeah, I think with a few months uh, of just sort of getting my head together, I might come back with, you know, with a clearer mind and different focus and, and maybe find a new project. Well, Richard, thank you for sharing that. I mean, the, there's no doubt that day-to-day life takes its toll. And yeah, I mean, I can speak from personal experience, like Twitter can be an incredibly addictive uh, tool that, is actually very unhelpful because you end up getting anxious about something you might have said or someone attacks you about something and you know it, it, it can be unhelpful and so to at least recognize when 
one is not feeling how they would like to, et cetera, then that's the first step, isn't it? Okay, well, how can I change what I do every day? And, you know, as you mentioned, less time on the laptop and avoiding your phone. And these are like really easy, actionable steps that I'm sure have made a difference. Um, equally, to be fair, you have been on an extra, like an extraordinary creative like streak, right? There's no, no one can keep up that level of performance for like a sustained period of time. Everyone needs to look after themselves, take a breath. Um, and yeah, I mean, lastly, to your, to your comments about like worldview, the, the speed that my, my worldview has changed in 24 months is, is crazy. Mm. And a lot of that's around really starting to look at what is going on and how perhaps one's been lied to, perhaps one's been manipulated in condition for a long, long time to think that, you know, for example, reading anatomy of the state, it's pretty blunt. And you go, ah, oh, but isn't the government good? You know, that, that's what we've been taught a whole life, you know, through history lessons in class and through the messaging of the entire setup. Um, so it's confronting on its own. You know, you're like, whoa, this is really abrasive in a sense. And, you know, you talk to your sibling and they're like, you fucking lost the plot, mate, or, or whatever the case might be. And they've basically had the same life as you, right? Similar school and similar age and whatever, same parents. And then you have these completely different worldviews. You're like, how, how did we end up at this point? Um, and so, yeah, like just taking a breath and taking a break is a great shout. Um, well, Richard, look, an hour and a half has flown by. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with me. Um, I look forward to getting to know you better over the months and years to come. And hopefully we'll see each other at the, the Bitcoin bush bash whenever that happens again. Um, yeah, I mean, even if you're not going to be on Twitter, is that the best place for people to get hold of you? If anyone's looking to, well, first of all, buy your new product or equally um, get in touch about your films or whatever, where would people be able to reach you? Twitter's still the best place. I just, um, you know, I'm still on there. I just, yeah, just as you mentioned, <laughs> just about some conscious strategies just to, yeah. to reduce the, some of Once the negative or elements of it. Yeah, and, it, and it's just something as simple as getting rid of the app on the phone, and I just yeah, I check it once every couple of days, just on the just on my computer. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the the best way. Um, R James underscore BTC on my Twitter profile. There's a link to to the websites with all my um, my films where you can go watch them, and you know you can get in touch with me that way. So that's the yeah, that's still the best spot. I'm Thanks, still Richard. there. <laughs> I don't um, think I could burn Twitter completely. No, no, you can't because no, it's too much fun in a sense. Exactly. Uh, I'll be back. The, <laughs> the subject you touched on at the very end there, the euro dollar, that needs exploring, but it's a, a conversation for another time. So perhaps if you do go down that rabbit hole, then we get together again and have another conversation. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, for now, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jake. It's been such a, a great conversation. Thanks for your, your thoughtful questions and, and responses. I've really enjoyed it. Pleasure. Cheers, Richard.